You're listening to Recover, a podcast exploring what it means to rediscover something we lost inside ourselves. Whether through addiction, grief, or trauma, we're all connected by the feelings of sometimes losing our way. Let's unlearn what got us here and find ourselves again together. And now your host, founder and facilitator at Invitation Wellness, Sierra Frost. Listening to Recover, I'm Sierra Frost, and today I have the pleasure of being here with Allie Owens. Thank you for being here today, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so tell me, when you hear the word recovery, what comes to mind? How, how do you apply that to your personal experience? I consider myself to be in recovery from several things. Um, diet culture, I am recovering from diet culture. Um, I'm also recovering from sexual assault and domestic violence and mental illness as well in the form of severe depression. So which one, I know that you, um, you authored a book and you speak a lot about diet culture. Can you reverse the clock for us and tell us kind of the first time that you realized that this culture even existed because a lot of times I think we're in it. It's like, there's this metaphor that someone used about a fish being in water and how fish don't even know when they're in the water because it's just where they are all the time. So can you talk about kind of discovering this idea of a diet culture here? Absolutely. Um, we grow up in diet culture. We're steeping in it from the time we're born. And so you're right. It it is hard to see it. Um, when I started to realize that it was even a thing. Um, I had just gotten out of an abusive relationship. I had been single for a year. I had gained a lot of weight um, because there were a lot of emotional factors at play and stress eating has been a thing, you know, all through my life. And I found myself feeling ready to date again, feeling like I wanted to be in a relationship. And my first thought was, I need to lose weight. I have to make myself smaller in order to be acceptable for somebody to date, for somebody to love. You know, and I went on a few dates and I, you know, I always saw the people doing the scan, the body scan. And even if they were really subtle about it, it always happened and they always looked disappointed, you know, and it made me wonder, maybe I just shouldn't date. Maybe I just, you know, I should give up on this and just like be alone. And then I, I, I thought to myself, I wish I didn't have to hate my body. And then I asked myself, what if I didn't have to? And for me, the answer to that question had always lied in, well, if, if I lose weight, then I won't hate my body. But then I thought about my relationship with my body, and I've been very thin, very fat, and everything in between. And even when I was thin, I was wearing you know size zero to two, people were telling me I was too skinny, and I still hated my body. And so then it occurred to me that perhaps the problem wasn't actually my body at all. Maybe it was my belief system. And that's kind of what started the whole journey, you know, I I decided my goal was to love my body no matter what the number was on the scale. I love your process is is almost like this scientific evidence, but also related to your emotional and personal experience. I think so many listeners will relate to, to that idea of preparing, doing air quotes, preparing to date and that we have to present ourselves physically in a certain way in order to be worthy of love, which is such a shameful and destructive belief system to have. And you really hit it on the head in a brilliant way, sharing that story. Thank you for that. Talk to me a little bit more about 
about stress eating as well, because I think that is something that so many of us, we get emotional and we're, we're kind of just numbed out or we're not thinking about it. Um, but so many people struggle with that. Yeah, it's a really common problem. And, you know, I think our culture really encourages numbing from our feelings, you know, using whatever substance. There's a variety of substances and activities that we as humans use to to shut ourselves down, to numb ourselves from the feelings that we don't want to feel. And for me, food was always one of those um, ever since I was a little kid, you know, um, as a result, my weight fluctuated a lot, you know, starting in my teen, my teen years and going all the way up into my 20s. And it was always I was either starving myself or just eating my feelings. You know, there was never a happy medium. And neither one of those things made me happy. Um, intuitive eating is something that I've come to discover over the last few years. And it's really been a game changer as far as that's concerned. And it's really just the act of tuning in and paying attention and saying like, Hey body, what is it that you actually want right now? And that has been instrumental in helping me realize that what I was doing was numbing with food. And yeah, that's part of why my body looks the way it does. You know, there are other factors, of course. It's not just that, you know, people make assumptions about weight and what a person is eating and what they're not eating and all of that. But ultimately, you know, stress eating is a form of numbing. It's a form of pulling away from feelings that we don't want to fully feel and appreciate in the moment. Exactly. And can you describe, can you define diet culture a little bit? And then talk to us more about intuitive eating and how those two things kind of relate together. Yes. Um, diet culture, as I define it, is the notion that we constantly have to be trying to make ourselves look a certain way in order to feel acceptable, in order to feel lovable, valuable, and worthy as people. And this is an idea that it's not just like a simple philosophy, it's pervasive, it's woven into our culture, you know, especially for women. I'm not, you know, men experience worries too about their physical forms and everything, but for women especially, our, our worth as humans is actually tied into how we present physically, you know, and it's really hard for most women to separate the two, I've found. Um, you know, we see, even at a young age, we see, we watch Disney films, right? And we see, you know, the plus size people in Disney films are always either like sidekicks or idiots or villains or something like that. We never, I never got to see a plus size heroine, you know? I never got to see people out in society that were being shown to me as an example of beauty. I never got to see that as a plus size person. It was always this very specific image of a thin, white very feminine looking woman, you know, and we don't realize that that's harmful. You know, I, I think we're starting to, in our culture, we're starting to wake up to that. But when I was a kid, you know, it, it was just how it was. There are things like, you know, growing up and hearing your parents talk, say negative things about their bodies or the bodies of other people. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they're harming their kids by saying these things. And it's something that so many women I've talked to grew up with, you know, watching their mothers in the mirror berating their own bodies and, you know, effectively setting that example as this is how it is to be a woman. We just always need to hate our bodies and try to make them smaller. I'm relating to what you're saying so much in, in that my clients 
are often almost numb from their bodies because of because of the shame and because of these ideas that we get from the fairy tales, from the media, from the magazines, from um, especially though from the direct people that we know, like you mentioned, our parents. And one thing that can really help shift, and you kind of did this with your question at the beginning, is we're so good at noticing what we don't like about our bodies or what hurts about our bodies. And we very rarely ask ourselves the question, what do I like about my body? Mm-hmm. What feels good in my body? Even if it's simply the color of my eyes or the size of my eyes. Or maybe it's my ears. I like the little point at the top. Or I like the shape at the bottom of my chin. Or whatever. So if you're listening and you're relating to this, one thing you can do right now, as long as you're not driving, is what do you what do you like about your body? What feels good in your body? And just start there. Somewhere you can go. So... I love this idea of really, of really pulling it, like noticing it in our culture, but the brilliance of what you just said is to pull it back into our lives and to know now as adults that we are impacting, whether there are children or different children, you know, we do this in public bathrooms, we do this in restaurants, um, in, in all of these places where there's lots of different ages around. Tell me more about the intuitive eating and the messages that are shifted there. I think a big one for me is, you know, I grew up believing that there were good foods and bad foods, you know, good foods were things like rice cakes and vegetables and, you know, things that I didn't like to eat, but they had some kind of moral weight ascribed to them, you know, bad foods. Those were the things that I loved. Those were like ice cream and cake and, you know, all the, all the junk food that I loved, but it was bad to eat them. So right away, when we are ascribing a moral attachment to what foods we're eating, well, that's a problem right there. And intuitive eating helps with that because it says there is no bad food. All you have to do is listen to your body. And if you listen to your body and it really wants ice cream, like eat the ice cream, you know, as long as you're not deathly allergic or anything like that. But, you know, if your body's telling you that's what it wants, it's okay to to give your body what it's asking you for. It's just a matter of tuning in because so often when we do things like stress eat and overeat and things like that, we are not listening to our bodies. We're completely detached from them. So our body may be telling us, actually, I don't want that second cheeseburger, you know, but we're not listening. We're not tuning in. So the act of really just getting grounded and tuning into your body and listening to what she's telling you, you know, it's really helpful. And it also can be surprising because you might find, wow, I was reaching for that bag of chips, but I actually don't really want chips. I want a glass of water. That's what my body's really telling me she needs right now. So some listeners, when you say, well, if you want to eat ice cream, eat ice cream, might then think, but ice cream isn't healthy. And what if I always say yes to the ice cream? Like maybe I want ice cream all the time. And what if I'm always saying yes? And don't I need to set this boundary of saying no to my body? How would you respond to that type of idea? You know, I can't speak for everyone, but I found in my experience that the idea of food scarcity was a big thing that propelled me to overeat. So when I say food scarcity, I'm talking about dieting, really. You know, I, I started dieting at the age of 11, and it was just 
constant dieting and then binging and then dieting and then binging. And when you put your body through those periods of dieting, it's essentially starvation. You're teaching your body that there's not enough food to go around. So of course you're going to snap and like eat the entire kitchen, you know, and in my experience, that's what I did, you know, because I was sending myself those physical and emotional messages that there was never enough to go around, you know, when I take the time to tune into my body, I don't always want ice cream, I find, because I know that if I, if I really want ice cream or cake or whatever, like I know that I can have it. Just that awareness is enough to really help me tune in and understand when I actually want it and when I don't. Let's shift back to your story. So you started dating and, and this beautiful question came to mind of what if I don't have to feel negative about my body? I know that wasn't the exact one, but what if I didn't have to feel the shame about my body? What was the first step you took? You kind of had this realization of, I, I want this to be different and I believe that it can. Maybe you knew what to do. Maybe you didn't. What was your first step kind of moving forward from that space? I didn't really know what to do moving forward, nor did I realize what a journey this would take me on. Um, I, I guess what I started doing first was just paying attention whenever a negative thought about my body entered my head. You know, I was curious to find out how often am I thinking these, these negative things about myself and specifically about my body and my appearance. And so I started paying attention and I thought it would be maybe 20, 30 times a day. It was literally hundreds of times every single day. And I was stunned and really saddened by that because so much of my mental energy and my brain power was going toward saying terrible things to my reflection in the mirror, you know, and it was just, it was just this constant barrage of insults to myself. And I realized it was like every time I, you know, walked into a store and the cashier greeted me, you know, I would wonder what do they think about my body? Every time I would like get out of my car to pump gas and there were other cars there, I would think about it. It was literally every time I looked into the eyes of another human being, I was wondering what do they think about my body? And to realize that was huge because I knew there was a problem. I didn't realize how deep it ran until I did that. It was like uncovering this, you know, swamp that I didn't know was there and it was hard and it was painful, but that's the first step toward addressing it, right? Is knowing what it is we're dealing with. So that, that alone was a really big piece of my self-love journey and the healing from diet culture. It's important when we make changes in our lives to survey where we're starting because like you said, you thought maybe it was 25 or 30 times a day, which is over once an hour when you're way awake, even more than that. And to find out that it's this, this shocking number and our brains really have a lot of thoughts per day, but you're right to, to say, Hey, where else could this brain power be going? What did you do then when you knew, you knew where you were starting, how did you move forward? Um, I did a few things. I realized that I had been punishing myself with my clothing. I had been squeezing into clothes that didn't fit because I was telling myself, no, I won't buy bigger clothes. You know, I'm, I'm going to lose the weight. I refuse to buy a size up, you know. So the end result was that I was wearing these jeans that were just digging into my hips and I was in agony. I was having stomach aches, like internal stomach aches from the waistband of these jeans. And 
I decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to try to love myself the way I am and stop thinking negative things about my body, I have to stop being in physical pain because that only is a reminder of my large body stuffed into these small clothes. Like that's not helping anyone. So I bought new clothes that fit and that also weren't these huge baggy things to just hide underneath. You know, I bought things that were a little more form fitting and that was a journey in and of itself. That was a slow progression. It took a lot of bravery. Um, but I kind of went piece by piece getting things that were a little bit more fitted and comfortable, you know, and that I felt good in. Um, I also did what you suggested, um, with the gratitude. Actually, I started every time I would look in the mirror, I would find something that I at least didn't hate. <laughs> it, it, you know, it was hard to get to love at, at the beginning, but I started with what don't I hate about my body? You know, and I would look at my face and think, Oh, my skin looks nice today. Or, Oh, I really like the color of my eyes or my hair is nice and shiny today. Things like that. Um, and eventually I was able to get to the point where I could, and I still can, you know, list off things I do love about my appearance and about my body, you know? Um, but taking the time to notice them instead of automatically going to the hatred every time I looked in the mirror was a game changer. Would you say that you have reached the point where you love every single thing about your body? Yes and no. Um, I have good days and I have bad days. There are some days where I feel very loving toward my body. And even the parts that society tells me aren't acceptable, I, I love them because they're me and they, you know, they, they're indicative of my journey and everything I've gone through to get where I am. And I love that. I also have bad days. I have days where I wake up and look in the mirror and recoil and think to myself, I should go on a diet. You know, I don't want to have this pretense that I don't go there anymore because it's a journey. It's not, you know, I don't think it's ever going to be finished. I think it's a journey. I'm going to be kind of unfolding my whole life, you know, but overall I love my body more than I ever have in my life. And ironically, I'm also almost to my heaviest point that I've ever been as well, which just proves that it's not really about what my weight is. It's my attitude toward my body. I also want to point out, you've mentioned this many times, that, that weight doesn't equal health and that shape doesn't equal health. So we have this idea, I think, related or maybe even at the root of diet culture that, you know, you go to the doctor and what do they do? They take your height and your weight and they tell you you're normal or not normal or obese or not, or they make a judgment and they give it to you. Right. And I've had so many doctors tell me like dozens of doctors tell me that that system, even though we're still using it, doesn't work, doesn't show us what's actually going on. And, and same thing with the calories in and calories out system that we that we use about our weight. It's not about that because I could be eating less calories with food that wasn't nutritious, that wasn't giving my body what it needed. And I could even look thinner and people would assume I was healthier, but the reality is that that, that isn't necessarily true. So I used to have an exercise addiction and at one point in time I lost a hundred pounds and people would congratulate me and tell me all the time how, how wonderful it was and how healthy I was getting. And it got to the point where I felt like, wait a second, was I not healthy before? Did you not like me before? And 
when it got to be too much and I was working out like five hours a day, the compliments kept coming. Nobody stopped and said, hey, I noticed that you're working out so much. What's going on? Are you okay? And it was damaging. It damaged my body. It very literally physically damaged my body. And I think that's an important piece for our listeners to have when we talk about why diet culture is a problem and something that we really need to work on individually and collectively. I also want to ask you, do you, do you see a relation between domestic violence and depression and sexual assault, the other things that you've experienced recovery from or are in recovery from, to the diet culture recovery? For me, recovering from diet culture is intricately intertwined with recovering from domestic violence and sexual assault, primarily because those are very gendered experiences, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, those happen mostly to women. And also diet culture affects mostly women in these really terrible, traumatic ways. And a lot of my experience with domestic violence was wrapped up in how my abuser wanted me to look, you know, he would tell me, you know, I needed to lose weight, he would restrict my food, he would pinch my belly fat, it was really minimal at the time I was tiny, but he, you know, he would pinch it and say, what is this? As though I, it was something I had done to him, you know? And I was young when I got in that relationship. I didn't really understand. I knew it was cruel, but I didn't understand how cruel it was. And I guess I thought I owed him something. I owed him my beauty, you know? I would exercise constantly. I would, you know, restrict my calories very severely. And it was to get this love that I was so desperate to have and that I didn't understand I deserved something better, you know? And I think so many women do strive to look a certain way in order to fit this ideal of, you know, the way a woman quote unquote should look. So much of that ties in with abusive narratives and patriarchal standards as a whole, you know, it's all very misogynistic. So it does relate absolutely. You know, I think women bear the burden of, you know, being in female bodies, whether that is female bodies that men hurt or that men try to take for their own or that men regulate the appearance of. I appreciate that the depth of, of your answer there and the thoroughness of that. It's not even just about your your body necessarily, but the way that you act, the way that you walk, the way that you speak, it becomes a weaponization of, of who we are. And statistically, it happens more often to women and also happens to men. And I believe that probably happens to more women and more men than statistics show because it's hard to report. A lot of people don't report it um, and it's not included in, the, in that research. It sounds like, Ali, as you have been recovering from diet culture, then that that's had a parallel effect on your recovery to these other things. Was there any moments or any really like sweet stories that you realized that doing the work with your body was helping these other areas of your life? You know, being able to, to ask the question, what if I don't have to hate my body? In a way, I felt like I was reclaiming my body. And that alone was a huge factor in helping me heal from sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, 
being able to take back your power over your body and say, no, I get to choose what happens with this body I'm walking around. And that is extremely powerful to be able to say that. And it wasn't really until I started my journey of self-love that I began to do more intensive healing from my past with abuse as well, because I realized I was worthy of love and I hadn't known that before. And once you realize that, once you really start to truly love yourself and forgive yourself and be compassionate with yourself and take care of yourself, everything changes. And I think it brings on a whole new level of healing that I don't believe I was capable of before I began on that journey. I really like the idea of discovering that you are worthy of love. And that's really what makes us able to give love to other people. Have you found that to be true for you? 100%. I truly believe that self-love is the key to solving the world's problems. Because if we are, you know, if I'm over here basking in just this genuine, radiant, beautiful self-love, it's really impossible for me to act terribly to another person. You know, when we do bad things to other people, when we, when we try to take control and exercise power and you know, all the things that are happening in the world right now, especially to marginalized people, we can't do those things from a place of true, genuine self-love. They come from somewhere else. And so I think self-love is really the key. I think it's the answer. If all of us were to focus on that, we'd be healing ourselves individually and healing the world collectively. I love that idea of thinking again, one thing I really like about you and your work is that you take these broad topics that you can see play out in the macrocosm of cultures, of countries, of societies, of even the globe. But the important thing is when we look at things that are so big, we tend to get so overwhelmed. We're like, is there an answer? Where is the answer? What do I do? And it's like we get paralyzed and we kind of shut down. And so instead, looking at those concepts, but then pulling them in to ourselves individually, that doesn't overwhelm us. That makes it so that we're capable of of taking a step and taking a change. What does recovery look like for you now? You know, it comes in a variety of different ways. A lot of the time, it's simply reminding myself that I still have automatic thoughts, you know, automatic negative thoughts about my body, um, giving myself grace when those happen because they're going to continue to happen maybe throughout the rest of my life. And that's something I have to accept and also not judge myself for and not fight against either. You know, it's okay to have those thoughts as long as I'm not letting them dictate my behavior and my beliefs. So being able to just be compassionate with myself when those thoughts do come up, just kind of as, you know, as if I was just giving myself a hug and saying, listen, it's okay. You know, it's hard some days and just know that these thoughts are happening because that's how you've been trained for 30 odd years, you know, and just because they're there doesn't mean they're, they're the truth. Definitely. And I say this all the time, just in case you haven't heard this, self-compassion is the number one predictor of mental health wellness. So just as you say, if we could all take a step into self-compassion, the amount of change that could happen in our world, I think, would be gigantic. 
Can I ask you about, about your love life now, how this journey has really transformed without going into any too intimate (laughs) ideas that you don't want to share, but what's the, what's the juice? The juice is I actually, I'm in a relationship right now. We've been together almost five years and he is wonderful. Um, really wonderful man. And he was actually very instrumental in my body love journey as well. Um, because I met him right when I was embarking on this journey and I remember we had been together a few months at this point, and I, I knew I was I was really falling for this guy. I was definitely head over heels. And we hadn't talked about my weight. It was kind of the elephant in the room, so to speak, kind of literally. <laughs> and one day I, I brought it up just because I, I couldn't bear not knowing what he thought. Was he secretly thinking I was disgusting? You know, things like that. So I brought it up and I said, you know, I've been thinking maybe I should lose some weight. And he replied as though I had said, I'm thinking maybe I should go to the store. You know, he was like, if you want to, don't feel like you have to, though. I think you're amazing the way you are. And no man had ever, ever said that to me before, ever. And that was, I I mean, that's when I kind of knew I was doing the right thing. Because, yes, there were people out there who didn't see me and automatically assume that I was disgusting or gross or unlovable or any of this stuff. He loved me so much just the way I was. And it wasn't, there wasn't the set of conditions, you know, lose weight and look like this and do this. And then, you know, it was, it wasn't like that. He thought I was amazing just the way I was. And he still does. He tells me all the time that I'm beautiful and I know he means it. And as a feminist, I feel a little chagrined that having the approval of a man, <laughs> you know, makes me feel better about my own self-love journey. But, you know, to to take the self-compassion route, that's the world I've grown up in. And, you know, it, it helped me. It helped me along because I heard a lot of women saying, yeah, go you, you know, your body's amazing, you know, but I hadn't heard a lot of men saying it. So to hear him say that and to be in that relationship that was supportive and loving and kind and respectful was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love that story. And yeah, so many of us, we do, we want approval and validation from other people. We want support from other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we do, a lot of people listening probably relate to this idea that we get caught up in like, well, if I need a man to like, quote unquote, approve of my body or something like that, then is this not really truly self-love or something like that? And then you, then we go down that rabbit hole, you know, and it's like our brains and our bodies are wired to connect with each other. Never in history have humans not needed and wanted the support of other humans around us. So to allow for that, I think, is a really brave step and, and to know like, hey, this feels like an elephant in the room. Probably to him, it didn't at all. It didn't sound like it. (laughs) But to you, it felt that way. And so to be able to just bring it up is so brave. And to say, I'm, I'm looking for support. I'm willing to accept support. I'm willing to allow myself to receive the love and the validation for these beliefs that I'm working on really like living and, and, and knowing in my bones, taking action on, not just giving lip service to or writing about, but then not doing the work to practice it in my life, which is a difficult task. And it, it sounds like that maybe you wouldn't have been able to even accept that love before. No, I definitely wouldn't have. I think 
that in order to fully accept and receive love and everything it has to offer, I think we need to at least be aware of our own worthiness of it. You know, it's really hard in a society that likes to demonize fat bodies. You know, it's really hard to come to that conclusion on your own that like, yes, I don't care what anybody says. I am worthy of love. And until I did that, you know, I, I, you know, the relationship I had prior to my current relationship, it was terrible and it was abusive and it was awful because I didn't realize that I deserved better, you know, regardless of what my body looked like at the time, because as I said, it went up and down and up and down by hundreds of pounds, you know, um, it it was the, the whole thing was, I didn't realize I was worthy of love, of being treated well, of respect, you know, and it wasn't until I began on this journey that I learned I was, and it really helped me welcome so many better relationships into my life and healing relationships too. What kinds of other relationships did it change? I think romantic relationship is like the obvious one that we think of when we're talking about body image and body shape and and all of these topics, but where else in your life or what other relationships did you notice a shift? There were some relationships where I had to set some boundaries um, because, you know, there's the people in your life that are, you know, oh, but I'm worried about your health. You know, I had to set some boundaries with those people, um, just telling them, listen, you know, I, I love you. I care about you. I appreciate your concern, but this is no longer a topic that's up for discussion. You know, this is my body and I won't stand for that anymore, uh, which was really hard and scary. Um, also, I've, I've formed some amazing relationships with women. Um, the female friendships that I found myself opening up to once I started the self-love journey was just amazing to me because I had never really been that open before. I had been really closed off and just so afraid of judgment and of putting myself out there and, and all of it, you know? Once I began my own journey of self-love, I found I had so much more love to extend. I started to really look at women and see past the physical because, you know, as we've said, when we grow up in diet culture, that's what we're taught. So I too would look around and I would judge other women's bodies. You know, I would say, say and think terrible things that now I'm ashamed of, but I didn't know any better at the time, you know? And once all that fell away and I was able to look at like into the soul of the person instead of just what they look like, it was incredible. The amount of connections I was able to form with women. And now I have this amazing supportive network of just fabulous women. It's really been such a huge source of support and love in my life. I'm so grateful for it. It's such an important topic for any, anyone who identifies as being female listening. I think because what I've noticed in my work is that Women are especially taught that they are sexual beings, but then not to be too slutty and all these different ideas. And then it does, it turns into this competitive culture where we look at other women, we're constantly comparing our bodies to them. Our advantage, if you will, in the world is that we are sexual beings. And so we're, we're taught and encouraged to use our sexuality to I don't know, create relationships, to have power, to prove that we're worthy of something, to climb up the corporate ladder, to get attention, to like all of these things that 
so many people want. Everybody wants success. Everybody wants attention sometimes. Everybody wants connection. Everybody wants to be loved and looked at with respect, but it turns into this weapon of this culture that women have a really hard time connecting because we can't always use our sexuality to have an advantage or to have not even an advantage, but like, it's like the tool that we use to connect with people. And when that doesn't work, oftentimes in the case of female and female relationship, we get confused and we, we shy away or we lash out and we do these things that kind of to defend ourselves because we're in this mode of competition. Absolutely. And, you know, the patriarchy has been pitting women against each other for hundreds of years, you know, back in the days of the witch trials in like the 1400s, you know, sister was testifying against sister because if she didn't, she would be killed. You know, there, there was power in numbers of women and people knew that, you know, and that's the reason why we are so isolated from one another. And I think that's getting better. Our society is beginning to understand the value of women coming together in support of one another. But for so long, it's been the opposite of that. And it's been terrible. And it's because, you know, the people that are that are running the show know that if we all get together, we can move mountains. You know, there, there have been efforts to keep us apart. And I'm really glad that we are seeing through that now. Uh, yeah, I love women and I, and I love men creating a container for women to, to truly be and and the the masculine feminine back and forth is such a, a beautiful harmony when it is done in a in a healthy way. One thing you mentioned that I also want to point out is the idea of advocacy versus shame. So if you're listening right now and you're thinking, like, maybe you're a health coach or maybe you're in the field of nutrition or medicine or something like that, and you feel really inspired and passionate about exercise or about eating a certain way or, you know, being a vegan or all of these ideas that that we do feel passionate about in different ways. There's a difference between standing up and saying like, hey, I love this, it's working out really well for me, and saying this is for everybody and kind of pressuring, like it, it turns into a judgment. So one idea that I've heard before is to stand up for what you believe in instead of putting down something that you don't. So really like focusing on what is the healthy change that you want to be. And if that is a specific um, way of eating or a specific type of exercise or something that really brings you joy, I want to say that that is awesome and I love it and I love that you have that and I love that you share it. And we have to come to a place where every we, we acknowledge that everyone else's choices are theirs. And so even if a person is choosing, and I know we've talked about this before, Allie, even if a person is choosing to be what you would judge as unhealthy in their eating and their exercise and any part of their life, that's their choice because it's their life. And even though it's not the choice that we would make, we don't get to tell them that they're wrong or that, or that they're bad or any of these other judgments. If they want to be unhealthy, if they want to smoke cigarettes, if they want to drink excess alcohol, we can feel concerned about them. We can talk to them about it, but we don't get to ultimately make the choice that their life will look a certain way. And that certain way is the picture of health for everybody or for them. 
Yes. Thank you for saying that. That's such a big thing I've encountered so often. You know, I, I have videos out on the internet and a lot of these videos are saying things like, you know, we all deserve to love and be loved no matter what we look like. And that's the message and that's it. And people will comment, but you need to be healthy. And they'll, they'll give me diet tips and they'll tell me these things, you know, and, and I'm not even mentioning my body in these videos. I'm just saying I deserve my own love. And that's the response. And it's amazing to me how many people still think that we can actually determine a person's health by the way they look, because it has nothing to do with each other. And I've, I've done the thing where I, you know, I respond and I say, actually, you know, I have low blood pressure, I have low cholesterol, I don't have diabetes or prediabetes or heart disease or any of these things, but I shouldn't have to do that. And even if I did, let's say I had heart disease because of my weight, does that make me any less worthy of love? No, it shouldn't. It still makes me a human being. And just because I haven't lived my life the way some other people have with regards to fitness and nutrition does not mean I am any less worthy of love from myself or from anybody else. That's right. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about your work. I know you have your videos online. You, it's so, it's like you, (laughs) I see you almost going into battle that might seem excessive, but, but it's like, you've done all this work around diet culture. You've come to this space of knowing what you need, how to take care of the the way you are having relationship with yourself and your body in the mirror and in other ways. And then, and then it's like, beyond that, you put yourself out into this same culture that you know will do things like you just described or comment on your videos, probably people you don't even know some you do mm-hmm. right. Commenting on your videos, telling you what to do and like perpetuating the same messages and the same culture that you are working to heal. And then you wrote a book about it. Tell us about, tell us about that process. Tell us about your book, about your work. The book is called Bad Fat Person, A Reflection on Plus Size Bodies in a Cookie Cutter Culture. Um, Part of it describes my own journey with body hatred, um, starting from, you know, childhood, going all the way up into my 30s, and what the process was of of starting to unlearn that. Um, There's some social commentary in there, um, some interesting information about health and how it does relate to weight and how it doesn't. did a lot of research around that and learned some really interesting things that are in that book. And also there's some exercises, some of the things that I did um, that I didn't realize at the time were actually exercises. They were just, you know, things I was trying to do to help my my experience along to help this journey move forward. Um, but I started telling people about them and I got really great feedback. So I put them in the book. There are 10 exercises that I believe can help people come to a place of self-love instead of just despairing about their body and feeling like they have to make themselves smaller in order to matter more. Beautiful. What was it like for you during, during the writing process and kind of like uncovering all of these different things? And maybe you'd done some work about it before, but I know, I know with clients and with myself in, in the process of writing books, especially when you, you circle back to past experiences Sometimes it brings up other things or tell us more about what that journey was like for you. You know, I I ended up writing more about my experience with domestic violence in the book than I had thought I would. At first, I, I was thinking it's not that relevant. But 
during the writing process, I realized it kept coming up and I realized that it, it was absolutely intertwined and that story needed to be told as well. So I didn't go extremely in depth with it, but as I wrote it, I realized how relevant it was to my own body image. Um, there was a lot of fear around that, around writing about domestic violence. Um, I did, you know, I changed identifying details, um, but I still think sometimes, you know, my abuser's out there somewhere and, you know, what would, what would that look like if he ever got his hands on a copy of my book? You know, um, it was also scary to, to publish a book around how I'm okay with being fat because up to that point, I hadn't really declared that as such, you know, I had like hinted it and dabbled in body positivity here and there, but writing that book and putting it out in the world felt like coming out, if you will, as a fat person and being really straightforward with, yeah, I'm actually okay with how I look. I actually really like myself. Thank you. You know, that was a scary thing to do because, you know, fat phobia is one of the last socially acceptable forms of discrimination. You know, nowadays, most people know racism is bad. You know, a lot of people know homophobia is bad. Like we're, we're getting there, we're making headway, but those same people that champion those causes will turn around and say, oh no, it's not okay to be fat because you're going to die. You know, so there's still so much discrimination left and it was utterly terrifying to put it out there in the form of a book, but I'm really glad I did because the whole process was very healing in and of itself. Mm, lovely. That's definitely brave to, yeah, like I said, be, be doing this work within a culture that is still there because when, when we recover a lot of forms, like there's a lot of groups who are being sober. There's a lot of, um, ideas that like using substances is, is harmful. And so like recovering from something like that comes to a place where culturally it's acceptable and it's healthier. And that's, that's the idea that we have, but this type of recovery is almost like socially judged as a, a bad quote unquote, bad form of recovery. But ultimately it's that you are taking charge of your own life and deciding that you're the one who gets to decide that and nobody else does. And I think, I think that's beautiful. Did you use an editor for your book? I know that when people write about recovery, it's it's interesting to be like different than having a book that maybe is fiction being edited, even though books are always really close to our hearts when we write them. But when you, you're in the space of writing about something that feels really subversive or radical in the world, did you choose to do that or share it with other people to get feedback? You know, I didn't really. Um, there were a few people I reached out to with specific questions, like, do you think it's okay to go into detail on this, or should I not, or how would how would that affect you if you were to read it? Would it rub you the wrong way or, or not? You know, things like that. But overall, I didn't have an editor. Um, I've worked as a copywriter and copy editor, so I'm I'm a good editor myself, so I trusted myself to be able to do that. Also, I do think some of it was was fear, the fear that whoever edited the work wouldn't really get it and would want me to make changes that I was very adamant that I was not going to make, you know, if I did this again, I, I think I would, um, have somebody edit, but it would have to be somebody who was very much, you know, on par with my own ways of thinking about this. There would, there would be no, you know, no room for anyone to try to actually change my message. Yeah, that makes sense. 
how can people get a hold of your book or follow your work, get in touch with you? Um, I am online at www.badfatperson.com. Um, copies of the book in paperback or ebook are for sale there. It's also available on Amazon in paperback, especially if you're international. Um, I can't ship internationally personally, but Amazon certainly can. Um, I'm on Instagram as Ali Owens Empowerment as well, all one word. And I like to hop over there and just, you know, get vulnerable and bare my soul for the world, you know, all that. So yeah, that's where I am. Lovely. And if you are local in Northern Colorado, I know it's available um, in local bookstores. So you can always check those as well. Correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. If you were to give a message to someone who is listening and relating to your story, Allie, maybe at the beginning, maybe in this space of realizing for the first time, what if I didn't have to hate my body? What would you want to say to them? I would want to say that you are worthy of love and you don't have to change anything about yourself to make that so. You, just as you are, are this exquisite, beautiful work of art and there's nothing in the world just like you. That's a really beautiful thing and it's a powerful thing. I want people to know that no matter the size or shape of the vehicle that they're driving around in the world in, they deserve love. They deserve to be loved. They deserve to love themselves. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming to share this radical and hopefully soon not so radical message and for the work that you do, especially for women in the world and for being here today and being brave and sharing so much of your story. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Want to learn more about overcoming adversity and embracing the full expression of yourself? Visit speakwithsierra.com and book a complimentary introductory session with Sierra today.